Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Let's hear God's word. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse? and destroy the work of your hands. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your presence with us. You have promised to be with us and to never forsake us. And we pray, Lord, that you would awaken us to the voice of your Spirit uh, speaking within us. And we ask you, Father, to uh, draw us close to yourself, to have us hear the truth from your word this day and to act upon it in the week ahead. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you that haven't uh, been here the last, the last few weeks, I've been providing brief summaries of what we've covered, and we've been in Ecclesiastes for three weeks. This is the fourth in the first two messages, we gave two worldviews. In Ecclesiastes 1.1 to 2.23, we see a worldview that is marked by vain repetition. And then in 2.24 to 3.22, we see purpose and meaning. These two worldviews are at opposite ends of the spectrum of how you can view life. The next lesson, what we covered last week, was from Ecclesiastes 4, and there we learned to value people. We learned that oppression is incredibly evil and sad, and all too common in our world, that envy and greed are just grasping for the wind, and that a life, a solitary life, lived seeking things, no wife, no kids, no brothers, nobody, to leave anything to was a grave misfortune for the man that lived that way. It was uh, illogical, really, for anybody to live that way. Then we learned that there is, in community, assistance, comfort, and safety. And so community was lifted up as beneficial for us, a good that we must not shun and then last we, we learned that it is idolatrous, foolish, to seek salvation through man, through anybody apart from God, through man or government. Last week was all about relating to people. This week is all about relating to God. Last week was about valuing people. And this week is about revering God. Our title is Revere God. And let me give you a brief definition of revere. To regard with awe, great respect, or devotion. To revere is to show the deepest 
respect and esteem for a person, an object, or a deity. It has a sense of treasuring with profound respect. Now, it was not easy to title this message. I told Gary that I was glad he didn't ask me Wednesday night at the session meeting because I didn't have a title that night. And normally he has it by Wednesday afternoon. And so I didn't remind him and he didn't ask me. And the next morning when he did ask me, I thankfully had a title right then. There's only seven verses, it's only 170 words. I listened to it repeatedly on my CD this week and it takes 58 seconds. And yet I listened to it over and over and over again and I kept vacillating between two primary emphases that appeared to me to be there. But then suddenly it just, you know, the skies opened up and God said, nope, 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 your focus is wrong down that path, this is the path. And let me share with you why I was confused. In these brief seven verses, there is such an emphasis upon our words, us as people, as human people. It is just uh, saturated with voice. Mouth twice, words three times, utter, say, voice, vow is used four times, and excuse, and if your uh, Bible is like mine, it actually says literally voice, that is in the sixth verse, so it's just saturated with our words. Yet, because of that, I could have titled it, Watch Your Mouth. That idea came to me. I thought, well, that would be an interesting title for the sermon. Or, Shut Up and Listen. Because three times, who Solomon is speaking to is referred to as a fool for not doing that very thing. But, if I'd done either of those, I would have missed, I believe, the major point, the major thing that is going on here. We must not make this primarily about us. And if I were to do that, it would have been about us. So see, this is not about us and our words. It is about us and our words before God. In verse 1, we're entering the house of God. In verse 2, we're speaking out of turn before God. And we're reminded that we are on earth and God is in heaven. In verse 4, we're vowing to God. In verse 6, we're lying about that vow to the messenger of God. And in verse 7, we're admonished again to fear God. So see, this is all about our words, but it's all about our words as being heard by God's ears. So we cannot forget God in this or we do a disservice to the text. But it is a fairly straightforward sermon to to, uh, illustrate. You've got four main points Verse 1, we're to listen for God's voice. Verses 2 and 3, we're to be silent. In other words, to hear God, as we're told to do in verse 1, we have to be silent, allow our own voice not to obscure his. In verses 4 and 5, we're to do that which we told God voluntarily we would do. And then in verses 6 and 7, we're to act honorably on that promise we made. We're not to make excuses. We're not to be whiner babies. So, before I go into these four points, though, I want to make one point. And that is that the Bible says that God delights in us. Psalm 37.23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Proverbs 3.12 says, For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. Now, some people 
say, because God delights in us and because Christ has come and set aside the rock of offense that separated us from God, the God is always delighted with us. We can do no wrong. They disconnect God's taking pleasure in us from our behavior. Yet, when you read both of those that say God delights in man, both of them are contingent on behavior. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. He delights in his way as he goes down his good road. Proverbs 3.12, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects just as a father the son in whom he delights. So in other words, if God is our loving father, he will correct us. So he will not delight in letting us get away with stuff. He will delight in bringing correction into our life. So see, these people that believe that it is impossible for us to displease God are taking our security of salvation and misappropriating it, misapplying it to the relationship that we have with God. We then can justify giving God our sick and our lame sacrifices as if we've done something wonderful. Our wimpy and self-absorbed babblings in prayer as if it's only spending God and time, uh, our time in God's lap that concerns him. But that's not the case. This perspective, when we look at God as a grandpa that is so indulgent that his little children crawl up in his lap and rip off at his beard and run off and tear up his stuff, and he just smiles at them and sits in his rocking chair, that is entirely inappropriate. That is not our God. We children that misbehave will be rebuked by God. God tells us that he'll do that. And in our text is the proof. Verse 6, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? See, that is God bringing fearful correction into our lives when we go too far. And if you are want to disregard Old Testament proofs in regards to this, let me give you one from 1 Corinthians. And actually later we'll talk about this Old Testament, New Testament proofs stuff. But in 1 Corinthians 11, in verses 31 to 32, we read this. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So see, Paul is discriminating between how God treats the believer in his disobedience and how God treats the unbeliever in his disobedience. But he still deals with it. As a matter of fact, some of these people died. God executed them for their misbehavior at the Lord's table in Corinth. So God takes very seriously his admonitions to us to obey him. So now, the reason I said all that, though, is that this text, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7, is all about us pleasing God. And so we have to clear that out of the way. We have to acknowledge that not everything we do pleases our Lord. Sin never pleases God. So when we indulge in sin, we are not pleasing to God. We are displeasing to God. But we are to judge ourselves. That's what the text said in Corinthians. We are to judge ourselves. See whether what we're doing is acceptable in God's eyes. Because he educates on this. So the first point, the first point that uh, we mentioned was listen in verse 1. And let's go there now. Listen. Walk prudently 
when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. So prudence is advised at all times, obviously, when we're in God's presence. And when are we in God's presence? All the time. So prudence is always advisable for us. But there is special care here because it says the house of God, going into the house of God. So special care should be taken when we are coming into worship with our Father in community like we are now. It is a privilege for each of us to be here, a privilege that not all of us appreciate all the time. And yet, one that people that don't have this would love to have. People, as Gary mentioned earlier, that cannot meet in Iran, they cannot meet publicly. They cannot meet in big bodies like we do. They must meet in small bodies. They dare not be meeting in a church of this size in a building devoted to this. So see, we are privileged to have this opportunity to do this. Uh, Michael Elliott, some of you know, just went out to Montrose, Colorado to plant a church there, and he had several families join. Uh, right now, his family is exactly 50% of the church. He's got a big family. And yet, we believe it will grow. It has great promise. One of the men that joined is very thankful for this church. Uh, he is an older man. Several of these people are retired. They're all older. Not all of them, but most of them. And yet this one man came to Michael after the first Sunday service, and Michael was talking about the service, and he was talking about it, and tears came to his eyes. And he was just so thankful to have a Reformed Presbyterian church in Montrose, Colorado. What he feels to be a church that is worshiping God in the way that God has prescribed He's a good Christian. He's been uh, for months now, uh, well, over a year, while they've not had a church that is Reformed Presbyterian, he's been participating in this EV Free Church, and he loves it. He enjoys it. He likes these people. But it's not home. It's not how he knows he should worship his Lord. And so now that he has the opportunity, he, he's just broken. He's in tears over this great privilege that he has. We come to church as humble supplicants. We ought to. That is why we're here. That is the manner in which we should enter this place. Humble supplicants. We don't always do that. It says, draw near to hear. We're to listen. We're to learn. We're to come near to God. But today... I have it more difficult than you. I do. Because, see, I'm speaking. You're listening. You're charged now with listening, but I'm speaking. So when was my opportunity to hear as I was preparing this lesson? So my responsibilities have kind of passed, although obviously I'm here listening for the Spirit of God to lead me as I speak these words. But yet, those that speak... And we've had how many speak today? How many men have spoken today? We've had several men speak prayers. We've had the communion meditation be brought. Now I'm bringing the sermon. We had the leader of worship. Several men have spoken today. All privileged to do so. They had to have been listening for God's voice in the week past. If they hadn't been, they then failed to do what they should have done in order to be here today to be leading us all in worship. So... This is important that we men that lead these worship services 
take time to hear God in the week past. I listen here, but like I said, a lot of my listening has already taken place in the week. God using us men in this worship service is just such a great honor. It is a solemn duty. It is what we should do. It is what we want to do if we have a right heart towards God, but it is one that we are privileged to do, and yet we must admit we do not do consistently well. We have this responsibility, but we can come to take it for granted. We can come to just presume. The very next sentence says, rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. Now, I think in an innocent reading of this, nobody needs a commentary to understand what this means. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. So, what is the sacrifice of fools? This statement was made in the day of animal sacrifices. People would bring animals to the temple and they would have the priests sacrifice them. Some of those animals were very costly, very expensive animals. Some were just little birds that cost them a few pennies. What is it that people now expect to give to God for nothing, that costs them nothing? What do they want to give to you that costs them nothing? It's rhetorical. I don't need an answer. I think everybody knows. But let me tell you a story and then give you the answer if you don't happen to know. Years ago, I found a little tiny joke that I just loved. It was such a wonderful joke. And so uh, I mailed it out to everybody that has the, uh, has the sad state of knowing me and me knowing their email address. And I changed the joke a little bit. What I did is I put the first part in the subject and then I put the, the punchline in the body. And the subject said, everybody wants to serve God. And in the body but only in an advisory capacity. That's how many of us serve God, sadly. We just tell God what we want. We tell God what to do. That's how we view God. It's sad, but true. And so, see, many of us bring to God the sacrifice of fools. We think God can be placated merely with our words, our promises, our empty, meaningless promises. I'll do this, I'll do that. Manana. And for those of you that might not know that one Spanish word I know, it's tomorrow. So we are to listen when we come in to God's house. Uh, secondly, we're to be silent, to hear God. We must ourselves refrain from speaking. Do not be rash with your mouth, the text says. I was uh, telling uh, Samuel before the service started that if it were lawful, for Christians to get tattoos, which I'm not saying it is, there is one that would be high on my list. It would be the words of James 1.19. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And you know where I would tattoo it? Backwards across my forehead. <laughs> because then each morning when I looked in the mirror while I'm shaving or brushing my teeth, I could read it and I could be reminded that that's how I'm supposed to behave that day. Because, see, last Monday wasn't a day like that. I could have benefited, perhaps, from having that tattooed across my forehead. You know, it's backwards. I don't know if you've ever noticed, like, a, an ambulance that has ambulance written backwards, and it looks weird, but then you see it in your rearview mirror, and you see, oh, ambulance, I'm to get out of the way. That's why they do that. See, 
other people wouldn't know what it said necessarily. I'd make it in some like Cyrillic looking Klingon font so that people would, and then they'd just think I'm like most other Americans who are just tattooing stuff all over the place. But I would see it, I would know it, I know what it means. Oh yeah, I can read it clearly when it's backwards. Monday afternoon, I got a meeting invite at work. And it, there were four of us to be at the meeting. And I responded to the person that had sent out the meeting invite. I said, please invite these two people. Boom, boom. And uh, the person responded fairly quickly saying, oh, no, this is not a design meeting. This is just us discussing the issue that we have with you building this thing this month. I saw white. I wrote back this long, detailed note explaining why they shouldn't be interfering with me doing this stuff this month. And I... You know, I was being good. I'd, I'd keep excising the swear words, you know, I'd get down to where it's just what I want to say. But in the end, I, I reread it. I thought, okay, send. Now, I didn't just send it to that person. I sent it to all the people that they'd invited, me, him, and two other people. And I sent it to all the people on my team. And I sent it to five other project managers that are in similar positions like me who should stand against this tyranny. Oh. Boy, what a mistake. That afternoon, that afternoon, I passed my director and one of the people that was on the meeting invite, and I'd CC'd her, her on my response. She was one of the ones in the original meeting. And she just asked if I'm okay now, am I cool? Because 30 minutes after I'd sent out my note, I got a clarification of what this meeting was about, but I was too angry to accept that that was reason enough not to be upset. But so yesterday... I'm in my office at work, and I'm, and I'm preparing this message, and I kept reflecting on that whole episode, and I just let it go. I let it go. I told her, everything is cool. Everything is cool. And then yesterday, I'm, I go back, and I finally reread my note, and I thought, wow, I write well, but you can tell that I'm really angry, and I overreacted, way overreacted. All they wanted to do was talk to me. And yet, when they rejected my request to add those two people, I thought, oh, they're just wanting to run roughshod over my team. And all these teams, this is a bullet I'm going to take for everybody. But I should have never sent that email. I should have accepted the meeting invite. I should have gone. I should have prayed through this. I should have been prepared to present my views. But I overreacted. I spoke rashly. Do not be rash with your email. That's what that says for those of us in 2013. So see, our topic today, though, is about watching our words with God, and I stated that earlier. I, I want to always keep this in the context of God, but I had to share that with you. We can be so rash with our words. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. Now, how can our heart utter anything? Do our hearts utter? Does your heart utter? Well... Jesus referred in the Gospels to this, from the abundance of the heart flow the words of the mouth. This is how I've memorized it, but I can't find that in any version of the Bible. I, I, I have it as a loose quote, but obviously it's very loose because it's not exact. I must have mixed multiple versions, but I like it my way. That's why I left it like this. From the abundance of the heart flows the words of the mouth. The overflow of the heart uh, drive our words. This admonition is to not utter anything hastily. It's not just good or bad, it's anything. So what does that imply? First, it is our hearts doing the uttering, right? So we know that they're not yet words. 
And we know that we are to prevent our hearts from doing that uttering. So it means that you've got to have a regulator, a governor, not even on your lips, but on your heart. It has to be in your heart, preventing stuff from getting out. And it's not even just bad stuff. It's good stuff too. It's anything. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. Because see, that's how people get into trouble. They make promises to God that they cannot carry through. Because God is in heaven and you are on the earth. When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he gave them the Lord's Prayer, which we just recited at the end of our prayer of supplication. And it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In this start to the Lord's Prayer, we see two very important points. It was spatial, our Father in heaven. So Christ is confirming for us that we're not there. God is, we're not, we're on earth. There's a distance between us. But it's also spiritual. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does it mean to hallow God's name? To set it apart. God is in heaven and deserves to have his name set apart. Unlike us, we don't deserve that. So see, in two ways, Christ, right in that first line, said there is a line that you must not cross between you and God. God is free to cross it. You are not because you are a man. Balaam said to Balak, when Balak had called him to come and curse the Israelites who were coming through his land or near his land at the time, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man, that he should repent. God wants us to take words seriously. I gave this illustration a while ago, but it just is very powerful in my opinion. It's sad, but powerful. Uh, two years ago, I learned of the daughter of a lady that I knew that I went to high school with. Her daughter was dying. Her daughter's name was Rachel and was pretty much the same age as my Rachel. And so it just kind of struck close to home. So I was on my friend, the one I went to high school with, her Facebook page, and I followed it to her daughter's page, which some of it was public. And I saw a post that her daughter had made, and she was saying, you know, she was lamenting the fact that she's dying terminally of cancer. But she said in her post that she'd better have a nice effing mansion when she gets to heaven because of what she's going through. And I just thought, oh, you're not going to heaven. Not, not thinking of God like that. Not with, not with potty mouth like that. Not with the presumption upon God like that. And it just made me so sad for her that she just really didn't know God. She has this naive belief that she deserves heaven, but she doesn't know God. Not the God that we know. Not the God that uh, demands our respect and deserves it uh, supremely. Therefore, let your words be few. So see, we are on earth. God is in heaven. Let our words be few. I'm not going to uh, go through verse 3. It's, it's just an, uh, an emphasis, a proof of verse 2 given to Proverbs. But I, I need to get to something at the end of this message, and I want to save time for it. This is third point. We are to do that which we've told God we will do. Do. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. Now see here, God isn't even telling us to 
pay our vows, to fulfill our vows. He's saying don't delay in fulfilling our vows. Delay itself is often disobedience. But even if it's not, it often leads to it. When we tell our kids to do something, and hours later we see it's not done, or the next day, what do they say? Oh, I... Go ahead. I forgot. We all know the answer. Children and adults. Oh, I forgot. They wanted to forget, right? We know that. They procrastinate. They wait. Yeah, manana. They don't want to do it. It's disobedience. Jesus instructed business owners to pay their employees at the end of the day. Why? Why would he do that? Because he knows that the next day, it's a new day. I've got a different purpose for that money today. You know, stiff that poor fellow. We delay many things. It is disobedience. We are wanting to forget. Pay what you have vowed. Three times, as I said in this text, fools. We are called fools if we don't do as what Solomon is saying. If we don't listen. If we don't withhold our words. They're fools that do that. And God says he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Don't even think about backing out of this vow to God. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And this is where foolishness really comes in because people make foolish vows for various reasons. Some may not intend to honor them at all, really. They're just foxhole prayers. God, if you save me now, I'm never going to do this or I'm always going to do that. But then they don't, they don't do that. They don't refrain from doing that. They don't do that as they promised. It's just natural. Others may be in a public forum, and they might show off. They might commit to something that later they have regrets over just because they were out in public and they wanted to look good. A few years ago, many years ago, actually, uh, my wife and I were at Christ Community Church, and we listened to Oliver North give a talk. I thought it was pretty cool. He's a Marine. I was a Marine. I looked forward to this. And so it cost us 25 bucks, I think. I forget, but it wasn't cheap. So we all show up. Christ Community is packed. And uh, Oliver North starts giving his talk, and at some point he said, I want to help this church cover the expenses of this talk. He said, uh, I know that there are some people out here that have a lot of money. He said, I want to see a show of hands for who can donate $5,000. Let's just raise $25,000. This is a fundraiser. Let's raise $25,000 right now. There you go, sir. Yes, thank you. That's one. And then... Two minutes later, he's got 25 grand in his pocket. It's like, wow, you know, that was probably a speaking fee, I would imagine. He was just getting his speaking fee right out of the way. So see, I'm like trying not to move. Uh, there's no way I'm giving this church $5,000. So it's like, you know, like I'm at an auction, you know, where they're going once. Sold. Oh, man, I think a bunch of us felt that way. It's like, oh, they finally got five people to raise their hands. I don't know how that happened. There's no way I'd, I'd have to take out a loan to give this people. But so see, even the people, though, that raise their hands, you know, it's, they want to be seen in, in a sense. This is very public. So see, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. I'll get back to that story. Point four, act honorably. Don't make excuses. Don't be a whiner baby. In verse six and seven, that's what we're seeing. 
Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? When I was a, when I was a young man, my brother, my brother would bring home the colorful sayings, typically my oldest brother, but I heard him say a couple times, don't let your crocodile my mouth write a check that your alligator behind can't cash. So see, he was saying, you're saying you can do this, you're saying you can do that, but can you really, you know? And as God would say, you're only a man, you're on earth, you're not in heaven. Our mouths get us into trouble with one another, and our mouths get us into trouble with God because we go too far. Nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Now, a messenger of God can be used for an angel, but I doubt this was an angel. This is the person at Christ Community charged with tracking down and getting each of those $5,000 donations. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. See, some of those people, I don't know. I don't know. When you're in those high-pressured situations and you, you know, think you can do this, oh, now I suddenly realized I had something else intended for that $5,000. Well, it's too late. You committed. You, you raised your hand. You followed through on your commitments. And verse 6 is all about us trying to weasel out of our obligations. It is, it is part of our fallen nature that we attempt to do that from time to time. But why should God be angry at your excuse, your voice, and destroy the work of your hands. God takes words so seriously, words are so powerful, that he will destroy the work of our hands. All of our words are spoken in God's presence. They're either spoken to him, or they're spoken before him, but he hears everything we say. Matthew twelve thirty six. Jesus said that we will give an account for every idle word spoken. Oh, that is incredible. I mean... How is that going to happen? I, it boggles the mind. How can we possibly give an excuse for all of our idle words? Excuse. See what I said? He will destroy our works, it says. Now, what works would God destroy? I believe what's implied here is that God will destroy the works that were built upon these broken vows. What money we've kept back from paying these laborers or doing these things that we had committed to, now we're using it over here, but God destroys that work because we're building it with his money, things that we have obligated to him. In verse 7, in the multitude of dreams and words, there's also vanity, but fear God. I see this verse as an antidote to the poison of human words. In the multitude of dreams and words, there's also vanity. In other words, Solomon tells us, you are bound to have these empty words. You are bound to make vows that you break. But when you do, you go to God. You fear God. You be honest with God. You don't attempt to weasel out of these commitments. You go to God. As a matter of fact, uh, we are to beg for mercy, remember, in the parable about the man who has this debt, and he goes, I cannot pay this. You know, please give me time. You, you negotiate with whoever it is. That's what, you're being honest, you're coming clean. God wants us to do that with him, fear him, revere him. Now, I, in some sense, hurried through some of these points because I wanted to get to this one, 
and I know it's on some of your hearts concerning this, and that is, does it remain valid for us to make vows or to make oaths? Vows were authorized by God. Let me read to you from Numbers 30, the first two verses. Actually, I can read you the second verse. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. But is it the case that Jesus nullified what we just read? Is it the case? And let me take you first to James, and it's in James 5.12 that we read this. Oh, I thought I had a bookmark, but I guess I don't. Above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. So, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now, let me read from Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount what Jesus said, and this is at Matthew 5.33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So that last verse would appear to be what James, Jesus' brother, was quoting there. So the question is, does this negate what we read in Numbers 30 about vows and elsewhere in the Old Testament. Uh, reformers are pretty much unanimous in upholding the making of oaths. And so obviously they view what is written in James 5 and Matthew 5 as still allowing for oaths and vows. Westminster Confession of Faith 22.2 says, oaths are appropriate only in matters of weight and moment. In other words, they're serious, serious stuff. Heidelberg Catechism, question 101, says that we are to make them only for serious commitments, but neither negates them. Ni neither says you're no longer allowed to make vows, Jesus ended that. Now, there are problem texts for people that believe oaths and vows have been abolished. And let me give you one. Acts 18. Acts 18, starting at verse 17 then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him uh, before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. So Paul took a vow at this time of his life. He's been a believer. He's been an apostle for years by this point, and yet... He obviously is under a vow. He took a vow. Jesus, in Matthew 26, let me read there. Jesus, in Matthew 26, starting at 62, he's before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, and the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? 
But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. You see what Caiaphas had done. He said, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. And Jesus answered. Until that time, Jesus had been silent, but he chose to speak. Oaths and vows are voluntary, always. I guess unless in a shotgun marriage where you have to get married, where someone's holding a gun to your head. But, but oaths and vows are voluntary. We enter into them willingly. And Jesus entered into this oath that Caiaphas presented to him willingly. Now, Jesus also in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18 said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Where is Numbers 30? It's in the law. It's the law. Jesus right here promises that he will not abolish the law until heaven and earth pass away. So see, the law, Jesus said, is still valid. He will not abolish it. He has not abolished it. But yet many now say that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount abolished the, the lawful taking of vows or oaths. What Jesus was doing, and, and I know I can't go into this in great depth. It really deserves a full sermon. But Jesus was correcting the error of his day. The Sermon on the Mount is all about correcting error. That's why there's so much in there that's difficult to understand and to imagine sitting there under his tutelage during that sermon. I mean, it's, it's just amazingly difficult to think that this is what he was telling people to do, but he was. They, these Jews, had developed this whole hierarchy of oaths and vows. They had established an intricate system to get around them. They swore by the temple, they swore by the gold in the temple, they swore by the altar, they swore by the city of Jerusalem, they swore in God's name. But yet, Jesus himself called them about the temple. You say that anybody that swears by the temple, they're free from that vow. But if they swear by the gold of the temple, then they're to be held to that vow. What they would also do is they would say they swear by Jerusalem, the holy city, but... The oath is not valid if they aren't facing Jerusalem at the time they say that oath. So you're allowed to swear by Jerusalem the name of the city as long as you're not facing it, and then you're free from your oaths. They were liars and cheaters seeking to justify what they were doing, get over on other people that think they're supposed to tell the truth because they're Jews, and they're just getting, oh, oh, yeah, I, I must not have been facing Jerusalem when I said that. No, I'd have never said that, facing Jerusalem. So they just lie, lie through their teeth in order to get their way. And yet Jesus just calls them out on that, castigates them for this action, this, this uh, whole uh, pyramid of things that they built up. Now let me go to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is beautiful. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? 
Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. Jesus swore to his own hurt in Caiaphas's presence. Caiaphas charged him before God to take this oath, and Jesus did, and he told him the truth. But Caiaphas assumed he lied because the Son of God doesn't walk on earth, does he? Oh, well, Caiaphas hadn't got the memo, right? The Son of God did walk on earth, and yet here he's being put to death by the very people he came to convince of his being their savior. Now, what's interesting to me, and I think it's important, that's why I chose to speak about this, those who oppose the taking of vows and oaths, I understand they look to what Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount and what James writes of, but in my opinion, they're undermining what Jesus himself says in his final words as a free man. He chose he chose his final words as a free man to be what he said to Caiaphas. I am the son of God. And I don't refrain from saying that to you under oath. So see, he was not ending oaths. He was ending their tarnishment of oaths. He was actually in his final free act standing up for oaths, declaring them to be right, declaring words to be important, far more important than we regard them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. It is your words that are written in this Bible to which we cling to by faith in this life. We cling to your words by faith to overcome the darkness of this world, uh, the sin and evil, the oppression that dominates. And so, Father, we know the significance of words, and we thank you for having imparted uh, to us this significance. Uh, you've created us in your image, and a part of that image is to have the respect for truth that you yourself evidence. So, Father, we ask you to uh, educate us, to make us aware of our words, have us to regard our words as far more important than other people may regard theirs, those people that don't know you, that don't know the high value you place upon truth. So, Father, we pray that you would be with us now, that you would have this word to go with us wherever we go in the week ahead, that we would be reminded always of who you are, of what you've done, of how in your final act as a free man, you vowed, you took that oath before Caiaphas that you were the Son of God. And we thank you, Lord, for that truth. We thank you for that knowledge. And it's in your name that we pray, in the name of Christ. And we thank you, Father and Holy Spirit, for all of your actions, all of your works on the behalf of man. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.